bulletin, if you don't have a Bible with you today, I'll read this and then we will pray. This is the word of the Lord to you this morning. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come and uh, lay ourselves at your feet, hungry to know you, hungry to have you, Lord. We want you to come and teach us by your word, through your spirit, that we would have life. You have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? And so we pray this morning that you would use uh, me, you would use the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart uh, to uh, display your glory. Lord, would you uh, cut us to the heart, but also heal us? Would you give us confidence in your promises? Lord, be with those especially this morning who don't know you, that they would come to see you as the great King who offers them life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we lived in uh, St. Louis, I was uh, called to serve on a jury, which if you've ever had that experience, is always quite an experience. Uh, the children, in case you don't know what a jury is, a jury is a group of citizens just like you, they're usually 18 and older, uh, who have to decide whether or not someone's guilty. It's one of the ways that we keep judges from having all of the power. So uh, in this case, uh, one man, let's call him Frank, uh, was uh, accused of a very a number of very violent crimes. I'll spare you the details. It was quite gory. Uh, one of them was a crime against a police officer, and then uh, another set of crimes was against another man. And uh, actually, it happened in the other man's home. So we heard testimony from each of the people involved. The police officer, whose testimony was clear and well backed up by others, we believed him, no problem. But then we heard the testimony from Frank and from this other man, and uh, things got very foggy very quickly. Uh, when Frank and the other man told their story, uh, it, it actually sounded that uh, Frank somehow ended up in that man's house and Frank attacked that man. But after listening to them and after having the lawyers ask hard questions of each, uh, it came clear that actually both Frank and this other man uh, were lying to cover up certain areas they were entirely embarrassed of or ashamed of or were guilty. So, uh, in fact, while the other man was attacked by this man Frank, and he, most of his testimony was that he was a victim, it actually came to be clear that he had actually picked up Frank in his car and brought him back to his house and actually attempting to take advantage of Frank in some pretty gross ways. So this person who sounded like a victim actually turned out to be a fairly vile guy himself. Uh, it was a foggy situation because uh, we had to decide if Frank was guilty of violent crimes against this man, against a police officer, and therefore serve serious penalties in prison. 
And yet all we had to go on was unreliable testimony from two liars. <laughs> not ideal, right? Uh, and it was actually not a, a fun situation to be in at all. Very serious matter. We needed a reliable witness, someone we can actually trust. Well, uh, two weeks ago, when we looked at John 3.16, I said that we put God on trial in our hearts, asking whether or not he's good, asking whether or not he is loving. And we said that, in fact, Jesus is the primary way we get to judge whether or not God is good. Well, here in this passage, end of John, he ties up all the themes of this whole chapter into this theme of a trial, in particular, this theme of a witness of the witness of Jesus, Jesus as God's chief witness. And I want to argue that today, in fact, what we need in coming to know the truth of the Scriptures is exactly this. We need a reliable witness. So I want to begin by talking about this whole idea of testimony. Uh, why, or sorry, what makes Jesus a reliable witness? And then consider a little bit about what that means for us. So three points. Why does God use a witness... Second, the chief witness. And third, Jesus is a witness in two trials. So first, why does God use a witness? Why testimony? Why testimony? Uh, when it comes to most important questions, most of us expect God to give us something we can kind of prove the answer with, right? Questions like, uh, does God exist? Is Jesus the eternal Son of God who took on flesh? Right? How can we know these things are true? Uh, these are definitely the questions non-Christians ask when they come to confront Christianity. But also as Christians, I think if we're honest, these actually are the questions that sit in our hearts. These are the doubts that often, uh, which may be quiet, yet often plague us. How do I know? How do I know that I can actually trust the Lord in this? Well, it's interesting because in response to these questions, God gives testimony. Why is that? What's that about? Well, the first thing to say is that our mind is like a court. All right? Our mind is like a court. In fact, we use this language all the time. We put uh, claims people make on trial, and we decide whether or not they're true. We're kind of the judge of our own little court of reason. Our own small court. And I've said it before, it's not entirely bad for us to judge God in one sense, but let me clarify what I mean by that. What I mean is that uh, God actually speaks to us in a way that works with our reason. God actually intends to value our reason. But this doesn't mean that our reason is the ultimate judge. Here's how it actually is. You and I, in our own minds, if our mind is a court, it's kind of like the municipal court, right? Where if you get a speeding ticket... You can go and challenge it, or you, you know, parked on a handicapped spot that wasn't well painted or whatever. You can go and challenge it and say, listen, this is not right. And the municipal court will say, sure, fine, we can, we can uh, decide that here and now. But we also have a, a thing called the Supreme Court. And whatever uh, the Supreme Court decides, that's what goes for all of the courts underneath it. The Supreme Court doesn't undo the municipal courts, but it certainly can contradict them. But the municipal court, the local small court, Judge Judy can't speak to the Supreme Court and tell them they're wrong, whether or not we like it. Here's the deal. Our minds are like these little municipal courts. We judge small issues, and it's good. We even try to judge big issues, but as creatures... 
It's actually God who is the ultimate judge of all things. And he is the one who is the Supreme Court. He gets to decide all things. And as a municipal court, our job is not to stop judging and thinking for ourselves. Our, judge is, our job is to submit to that higher court. So Jesus' testimony is given to us in our small little municipal court for us to chew on, to count as evidence, to, to accept and to think about and to say, if this is true, what does this mean? But here's the problem. We don't want no stinking testimony, right? We don't want testimony. Really? We want God to give us proofs of how we can be sure. We want bulletproof, doubt-proof, undefeatable proof that God is and does all that he says he is and does. But instead, he gives us testimony. So I want to think about why this is. Testimony is an essential part of your knowledge. All of your knowledge has to do with testimony. We don't realize it, right? It's oftentimes not on our grid. I don't mean testimony the way we talk about it in Christian culture where you know, I'm going to tell you the story of my conversion and how the Lord's been kind to me. I love that kind of testimony. But that's not what John means here. In fact, I mean testimony as the solemn report of a person about something we have never seen and can't prove ourselves. Okay? Accepting the witness of someone puts me in somewhat of a precarious position. Right? I can't prove that they are true, that what they're saying is true. So accepting testimony is saying, in effect, I trust the reports of men who have seen things I have never seen myself, or women for that matter. If you're trained in universities, uh, you have kind of a gut reaction here, right? You want to recoil a little bit. A person being the source of truth? Are you kidding me? We want facts. We want knowledge. We want objective, scientific, well-established research. But what we don't see is that we rely on testimony all the time. All the time. In fact, much of what we take for a fact is actually just really well-corroborated testimony. Let me say it another way. Uh, we take it for a fact because so much testimony about it agrees. That's how we establish our facts. Let me read you a little parable uh, by one of the most prominent philosophers on testimony. He's an Australian guy. This is a fun little story. I'm visiting a foreign city that is new to me. Amsterdam will do. When I arrive at my hotel, I'm asked to fill in a form giving my name, age, date of birth, citizenship, passport number, and so on, all of which is accepted by the hotel clerk as true because I say it is. And will it be accepted by others as true because he says that I say it? More interestingly still, a good deal of the information that I give so confidently and authoritatively is accepted as true by me on the word of others. I actually think it's true because someone else has told me. So for instance, that I am so many years old, that I was born on such and such a date, that the number H11200 does indeed correspond to the number the Australian passport authorities have in their file. None of these are facts of my individual observation or memory or inference from them. They are based, sometimes in a complex way, on the word of others. Just think about that for a second. Your knowledge of your birthday, your knowledge that your parents are who they say they are, Right? Your knowledge that you uh, were not snatched at birth or that uh, your, 
the passport you're given is actually true and legit. All of those have been established by other people's words. He goes on. My first morning in Amsterdam, I wake uncertain of the time and ring the hotel clerk to discover the hour, accepting the testimony of the voice just as I would accept the institutional testimony of a clock. Lost my place. Or a watch. Being early for breakfast, I read a paperback history book I have brought with me, which contains all matter of factual claims that neither I nor the writer can support by personal observation or memory or by deduction from either. The deeds of a man called Napoleon Bonaparte is supposed to have done all manner of astonishing things more than 150 years ago. Many of his exploits bring uh, me, I'm sorry, many of his exploits uh, performed in places neither I nor even the author have ever visited and the reality of which is accepted on the word of others. Indeed, spurred to geographical thoughts, I reflect that on arriving at a strange airport a day or so earlier, I had only the air crew's word that I was, in fact, in Amsterdam. Although since then there has been much else in the way of testimony to support their claim, venturing uh, from the hotel, I consult a map and commit myself once more to the trust of my fellow human beings, just as I do moments later when I buy a copy of the Times, read about the military coup in Spain, an election campaign in Britain, an assassination in France, and a new development in medical science. It turns out that testimony, other people's word to us, is an essential component of our knowledge of the world. This is true for children. Right? Children ask parents and they accept their parents' word, but it's also true in highly cross-examined physical and theoretical sciences. The thing that we would think is like established fact no room for the word of others, only data. After all, how many of you have observed protons and electrons? I don't see any hands. Not to mention the roundness of the earth. But we take the testimony of pictures about the earth to be true. And right we should. It's good. Testimony is an important because it is one of those things where our picture of the world gets unscrambled we have this confused idea of the picture of the world. And I think this is actually exactly where the Lord can begin to work in us. And this is the second reason he gives us Jesus as a witness. Because truth and knowledge are personal. I don't just mean that they mean something to me. I mean that they have to do with persons. God chooses to give us the truth about himself through a person, Jesus this should tell us something about the world we live in. Uh, Christian thinker Esther Meek, I'd encourage you to read all she's written, she's phenomenal, uh, has helped me to see this. In our minds, we split up reality into two different teams, right? There's reality itself on one side, and we, it has a bunch of teammates, right? Uh, facts, knowledge, uh, let's see, truth, science, objective, neutral research, mind and reason. If we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes we put male... On the other side, we have this other team, which is our experience of reality with its teammates, right? And the experience, the feelings, we put belief, opinion, uh, emotions, subjective people, body, and if we're honest with ourselves, female. So our belief in our culture is basically that uh, belief is the same as opinion. It's not knowledge. It's not facts, and it certainly can't be something you're sure of. A belief is just a belief. It's over here in the experience team. 
We believe that uh, knowledge and facts are things that we can verifiably prove and establish with our methods of scientific research. And I actually like scientific method. It's a good thing, but of course it can't prove itself. That's one of the big problems it has. Notice, too, that if we actually have this view of reality, if we believe that uh, real truth can never come through a person, but only through facts, data, and numbers, people are subjective, we say. The truth is subjective. If that's the case, we have a lot of problems. Because, of course, it takes people to do what? To tell you about those facts, those data, those numbers. It takes people to figure out how to invent a language to describe these things. It takes people to tell you how a microscope works and how to trust it, and that it's actually not just a mirror. <laughs> right? It takes people to do these things. So if someone, oftentimes, if we have this view in our head, if someone says they believe in Jesus... Many times what they mean is that uh, they have had experiences having to do with Jesus or with his people, and they feel emotionally open to him. And that's good. You should be emotionally open to Jesus. But it becomes bad when we begin to act like all that really matters is what's on the objective knowledge side. The truth, the facts, the data, instead of this whole subjective side. So the person who believes in this way doesn't look to Jesus for knowledge, doesn't look to Jesus to think through how I'm supposed to order my life or what I'm supposed to love or what I should invest in or what reality is actually like. Jesus has nothing to do with it. So where do we put Jesus in this picture? We all believe Jesus, in fact, is a true person. So where do we put him? Which side is he on? Is he with the facts Knowledge, reason, mind, logos? Or does he go on the side of feelings, beliefs, body, emotion? Is he the source of all facts? Or is he just the thing we believe in and have nice feelings about? Jesus, it turns out, won't play this game. Jesus, honey, pick a team. Be nice. Join a team, dear. It turns out that he wants to blast apart the whole messed up picture we have. He has no interest in this strange picture we've painted of what reality is like. Because, in fact, guess what? He's made the rules about what is truth and what is not. He is the source of reality, and he gets to determine what is reality in the first place. Let me read to you what Jesus says later on in John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus doesn't have some truth. No, turns out that truth has a first name. Truth is a person. Jesus is the truth. So if God reveals himself through a witness, we have to deal with that witness. There's no way of knowing God except through this person. And he intends to change our whole view of knowledge and truth and belief. But God does not just expect us to take him at his word. Right? Just because uh, we kind of have some sort of blind leap of faith into believing in this witness because we're supposed to believe and believing's good. No, in fact, everything depends on the kind of witness, witness we have. And this is our second point. Jesus is the chief witness. When we accept someone's testimony, it's usually because that person has authority. Right? And they usually get it from one of three or possibly all three of these areas. Uh, they have first-hand knowledge of something, insider knowledge. 
Uh, they have a status, which grants their testimony a lot more weight. So just as we would take uh, President Obama's testimony a lot stronger than we would take your average Joe on the street, status communicates some of that authority. And also their character. If someone's a vile liar, if you begin to suspect that they actually are not committed to the truth, you begin to doubt their testimony. But if they show that they have a commitment to truth, even at cost to themselves, their testimony begins to be very weighty, very reliable. So, Jesus is the chief witness, and this is exactly what John shows us we have in Jesus. And he says that we have clear and compelling reasons to take Jesus' testimony in our little municipal courts very, very seriously. So he has first-hand knowledge. Look at verses 31 and 32. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. This is a contrast. He who comes from above comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Jesus uh, has a heavenly nature and origin and has heavenly access. He's not pontificating. He's not speculating. This is Jesus' first-hand observation that the Father is loving and has sent the Son to save us. Unlike John the Baptist, who has very authoritative testimony, can speak with power, and yet John is still just of the earth. All he has is what's been given to him. But in fact, unlike him, Jesus can speak authoritatively who God is because Jesus is God. He's an insider with God. In fact, John says earlier that the only person who has seen God in the full sense is Jesus. Jesus is from heaven. He's God, one substance with the Father. He has the best first-hand knowledge, just as any of your children can testify to who you really are. Kids, you guys know how your parents really are. Everyone's going to trust your word. Jesus has the inside scoop on the Father. But he's also authorized. Look at uh, verses uh, 34. Jesus is authorized. He has a status that makes his testimony very weighty. In fact, later on it says that the Father has set his seal on Jesus. Jesus is a divine messenger. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So a messenger is an important person those days. You know, if we had a royal edict from President Obama, we would not get it via uh, internet or uh, you know, some kind of just hearsay. They would send an officially designated messenger with a piece of paper with a seal on it. And they would read that out. And they were personally responsible to communicate all that that said. And this is what Jesus is saying about himself. That he is the divine messenger. Sealed with the signet ring of the king. With the full authority of the king. In fact, Jesus is the message himself. Look at verse 35. All things are given into his hand. You know what that is? That's kingly language. So Jesus is not only the divine messenger, he is the king himself coming to testify about his own message. The king himself has come to testify. Jesus, his authority as a witness, is because of the authority he holds as a king. Think of receiving a personal letter from President Obama with his personal signature and the seal of the President of the United States imprinted on the top. He could be telling you where to get a good deal on hamburger meat that week, and you would take it seriously, right? 
That's a big deal. But if he has a personal summons to you to come to the White House and to begin to speak with him, if you were to ignore it, people wouldn't just think you're foolish. People would think you're a rebel. See, Jesus is not only an insider, he not only has authority as a king, he also has personal investment in the truth. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. You know, rather than love making us want to blur the facts about a person, actually, uh, love makes us want others to know the real truth about a person. About a person to guard their reputation. So Jesus, as the object of the Father's love, has a personal stake in making sure that everyone actually knows what the Father is really like. The Father gives the Spirit unendingly without measure. This is verse 34. Jesus is constantly indwelt and full of the Spirit of God. There's a constant giving of the Spirit to the Son so that his insider knowledge of God is not just cold or factual, but it comes to us through his deep union with the Father, through their mutual indwelling. Now, could this give Jesus a bias as a witness? He loves this Father about whom is testifying? Certainly. Of course, you know, personal commitment can always make you want to protect your loved ones and kind of blur the truth, but think about what Jesus' testimony about the Father actually does. Jesus' testimony about the Father doesn't win him any friends. In fact, Jesus' testimony about the Father ultimately brings Jesus to the cross. He speaks the truth that he's the beloved son from all eternity, that he is God himself, authorizes divine messenger and king in communion with the Father and the Spirit who will return to judge all. And he's hated for it. In fact, uh, he is brought to trial for it. He's falsely accused by false witnesses for it in a corrupt trial and executed with the punishment used for the worst criminals and rebels. This chief witness, condemned by false witnesses, has given testimony to the goodness of the Father that cost him dearly. We can say, without a doubt, that Jesus' commitment to the truth is not a selfish one. It's one that comes at his own cost. And in fact, if you look, read the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the seal of God's promises, of their truth, is actually Jesus' blood. So Jesus testifies to us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one will see the Father except through him and in him, and we couldn't ask for a better witness or more weighty testimony. You know, if there's doubt on your heart, these are the things that you need to cling on to. These are the things that you need to sit on. That Jesus is beloved of the Father and knows the Father. That Jesus is the divinely authorized King who can speak with all authority. That Jesus is the one who is so personally committed to the truth that he's willing even to die for it, to be falsely accused, and to not defend himself. And this brings us to our third point. There's lots of testifying happening but what trial is this happening in? Which courtroom are we talking about? And I'm saying, our third point, is that Jesus is a witness in two trials. Two trials. 
In one sense, we ask every day, who is on trial? Who is judge? There's two trials in the Bible. There's the trial of the Garden of Eden, and there's the trial of heaven, the heavenly trial with God as judge. So in the Garden of Eden, if you remember, uh, Satan comes to Adam and Eve and tells them what? Listen, I know, God said, you'll die if you eat this fruit, but listen, don't trust him. He's a liar. He's actually not trustworthy. He's just trying to protect all the good stuff for himself. You need to uh, ditch God. He's an unreliable witness. Take hold of that fruit for yourself and get what you want. So they do. They take the bait, they eat the fruit, and they decide to trust the voice of Satan and suspect God. They decided to make themselves into the ultimate judge, into the supreme court. Sin, at its core, is a statement that God cannot be trusted and that we are better judges than he is about what makes a good life. That's what sin is. So, this is what happens in Genesis 3, but then right after that, if you remember, there's the heavenly trial that begins. What happens after they eat? Who comes waltzing into the garden? God himself. And rather than coming in uh, fury and killing them on the spot, the judge of heaven comes in and asks revealing and patient questions of Adam. Adam, where are you? The Lord knew. He already knew where he was. Adam, who told you that you were naked? Who gave you this fruit? Rather than interrogating Adam, God comes to him kindly. And we come to find out that in an attempt to make himself the ultimate judge, Adam learns what it is to actually be guilty. Isn't that an interesting thing? The moment he begins to insist that he is the ultimate judge, he becomes guilty. We also find that the true judge, rather than coming to anger right away, comes with mercy to prepare them for the final heavenly trial. Well, that's exactly what happens in this passage. Jesus, the true judge, the ultimate judge, the great king who reigns in glory, who upholds all things by the power of his word, has entered into the scene and he's entered himself into our little municipal courts, the courts of our own minds, as a witness. He submitted himself to our reason in some way, and he makes the most credible, authoritative, and reliable testimony there ever was. Especially qualified to speak about God. Especially qualified to speak about humanity as well. Because, once again, he's not only an insider with the Father, he's an insider with you. He knows you. He knows what it is to be human because he himself has become man. And what's interesting is that in our courts, he doesn't testify of anything but his mercy, of his forgiveness, of pardon available to all. He says that he is the true king, but that he has come to bring pardon before the final trial, and that he will gladly make us honored servants in his kingdom, useful servants, reigning with him in the ju as judges in the age to come. That he actually would gladly use our small little courts but it turns out that we are predisposed to reject his claims. Look at verse 32 and 33. No one receives his testimony. 
But whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Here's the problem. If I'm judge of my court and Jesus comes in as a witness and begins testifying that he, in fact, is the true judge of all creation, that he is the one who holds truth, who is truth in the flesh, if I'm going to admit that testimony is true, if I'm going to receive that, do you know what has to happen to me now as the judge? I have to admit that I've been a fraud and a pretender. I have to admit that I have been judging God all along and that I'm in serious need of pardon from the true judge. I have to admit that I've been wrong. Of course, here's the thing. You can reject the chief witness, right? The Lord will let you go at it for a while. You can say, this witness, he talks about fantastic things I've never seen. How can it be true? And God will let you keep at it for some time. However miserable it is, he'll let you keep banging your head on the wall. But there will be a day when the true king and judge comes. He will return. And in that day, it will be clear that he is the truth and that you, pretending to be the judge, are only that, a pretender. In that day, he will be vindicated and you will have condemned, not him, but yourself. This is what happens when we insist on judging God. But if I do receive him, if I'm that judge and I receive his testimony, we find that rather than God turning his wrath on us, I find that there's mercy there, ready for me, ready to forgive me for pretending to be the king in the king's place, for pretending to be the true judge. Because verse 36 says it plainly, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And interestingly enough, rather than booting us out of our little court of reason and telling us, stop thinking, stop using your mind, stop processing and chewing, he actually begins to redeem and restore our minds and our reason into his service. This is what Christianity says, that the Lord fills our reason with his mercy and his kindness, his love, his justice, his glory, his truth, and best of all, himself. So today, if you've received the testimony of the chief witness, today you have passed from death to life. And he intends to use your mind and your whole person to testify of the true God, full of grace and truth, however small your court may be. Let's pray.